Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy, and that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the, in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message that they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Well, Merry Christmas, Candio Church. It's great to be with you this morning. Thank you so much for those who joined us in person, those online. It's great to be with you. If you have a Bible, uh, you can open to Luke chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 20 today. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have it on the, the screens behind me here. But I want to start by asking a question, kind of a fun question. Have you ever been offered something that you couldn't refuse? Has anybody ever given you an offer that you couldn't refuse? An example for me was about eight years ago, some friends of mine and I, we were going to Dallas, planning to go to Dallas for a, a conference when a mutual friend of ours, a fairly wealthy individual, offered to fly us in his personal jet. I don't have one of those. Uh, in fact, I used to joke with him because at one point he owned half of a plane and shared it with somebody else. And I said, you know, if we round down, you and I own the same amount of airplane. And I thought that was always a funny joke. He didn't quite understand it. But, uh, but he offered to, to fly us in his personal plane. And, and he himself is a pilot. So it was like, yeah, I'll, I'll fly you. We'll fly down. The whole experience is really wild. I don't know if you've ever flown in a private plane. But, you know, it's like, yeah, just meet at my hangar. That was another phrase that I'd never heard before. Meet at my hangar at 8 a.m. And we'll be wheels up by 8.15. There's no security lines, no waiting. You just kind of walk, put your bag in the certain compartment. He locks it up, hop into the plane. 15 minutes later, you're up in the air. We landed at Dallas Love Field and we like taxied over to the FBO. It's the fixed base operator where essentially they like store your plane while you're there and fill it with gas and stuff. The place that we pulled up to, the FBO that we pulled up to was called Million Air. That was the business. And when we roll in, they like pull in our rental car about two feet off the tip of the wing, roll out a red carpet, they get our bags. We literally just walked up the plane, signed paperwork for the rental car and took off within five minutes. We're now flying down the roads of Dallas. And I'm just laughing, like, who are we? Like this, 
I'm so out of place in this whole scene. <laughs> it's the craziest experience I've ever had. Now take that, guys. Imagine tomorrow I'm sitting in my office and somebody just busts in and goes, Cody, your private jet is here. As I'm just telling you right now, my response would not be, oh, that's good to know. And then go about my business. It would not be, oh, great. And then go about my business. See, an offer like that of, of that magnitude demands a response. You got to do something. And really an offer of that magnitude really demands only one response, which is like, I'm calling my wife, pack your bags. Where do you want to go? We're, we're off. I mean, there, there's one response to that. An offer of that magnitude demands a response. And the same is true, though, for Christmas. And I don't think we often think that way. Because Christmas is not something that we acknowledge or celebrate. It's something we must respond to. And we'll see that today as we walk through Luke 2, verses 8 through 20, as we unpack the audience of Christmas, the gift of Christmas, and the response to Christmas. And it's going to beg the question, what is your response? What is your response to Christmas? So let's jump in, verse 8. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. And then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Like, imagine here, as you go into verse 8, like the excitement of a new father whose son has just been born. You know, that, that scene where you, you bust out of the, the room and you're going to call friends and family. This is God. <laughs> so excited. His son's been born. He goes out and he's going to make a call. And who are the people that he contacts first? Of all the people that he could tell first that his son had been born, shepherds? Shepherds? There's a little something about, about shepherds here. Physically, shepherds were poor and they stink. Socially, they were uneducated and had little to no influence. Most of them would live, die, and be forgotten, and no one would know who they were. Spiritually, they were considered by the religious elite to be unclean. Like when it came to the playground of life, shepherds were the last pick every time. Nobody would want these people on their team. And yet from the very first proclamation of Jesus' arrival, God makes one thing abundantly clear. Jesus is for anybody and everybody, especially those who are below average. Jake ended last week's service by reading these verses. And if you took the faith card last week, this is a passage that you've meditated over yourself, maybe even with your family and read time and time again. But Paul's words to the Corinthians, he said, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, 
to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Church, God loves saving and using below average people. And that's great news for us in particular. <laughs> Because it reminds us then that you and I are not a mistake. You and I are not some accident. The fact that God is doing something in this speck of a city in the middle of an ocean of cornfields is not a deviation from God's standard operating procedure. When God reaches out to shepherds first, and now this, this truth is like forever immortalized in the manger scene because every time you see a manger scene, you see shepherds. And every time you see shepherds, it should be a reminder to you that God loves saving and using below average people. And why does God love to do that? God loves to do that because when all of a sudden God uses that below average person or those below average people to do something extraordinary, mass movements of people coming to know Christ, churches being planted, nations turning from darkness to light. When that happens, no one gets confused and goes, well, they must have done it on their own strength and influence. Now, this mass movement that started with shepherds and then fishermen and prostitutes and everything else like that, everybody looks at it and goes, God did that. And they give credit where credit is due. But God loves using below average people to do extraordinary things. That's good news. And it's been his way from the very beginning. Verse nine says this, that the angel of the Lord showed, stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. This would be like the Clark Griswold moment of like, Helen, come out and look at the lights. And it says they were terrified and rightly so. Every time in the scriptures, that a person experienced the glory or the greatness of God, there was an instinctual response where they would hit their knees and expect to die. That happened every time in the scriptures that somebody experienced the greatness and glory of God and they were terrified. Maybe what came to their mind was like that classic, like playground bully question of like, are you prepared to meet your maker? Which I don't know if anybody says that anymore on playgrounds, but. But it's the same question, like, are you prepared to meet your maker? Their response would be, no, I'm not. I'm not ready for this. They could feel their guilt and their shame. And in that moment, they expected to die, which is what makes these first words very significant. Don't be afraid. It's the exact same phrase that was said to Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, the angel communicated to him, don't be afraid. It's the exact same phrase that the angel said to Mary, don't be afraid. It's now the exact same phrase that starts this proclamation to the shepherds, don't be afraid. God has been silent for over 400 years. There'd be a rightful question of asking, I wonder what's on his mind, what he's thinking about. And his first words in this moment are, don't be afraid. We're going to move from the audience of Christmas to now see the gift of Christmas. It says, don't be afraid for look, 
I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This is the sign for you and you will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and laying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people he favors. This is the gift of Christmas, verse 11, that today in the city of David, a savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Now guys, this is kind of gift giving 101. I assume you know this by now. But the truth is about giving gifts is that the excitement of the gift hinges on the need for the gift. Like if I'm unwrapping presents and I live in Hawaii and I open it up, I might look at something and go, it's a sweater. Because you know, who needs a sweater when it's never below 70 degrees, right? The excitement of a gift hinges on the need for the gift. In the same way, the gift of a Savior is only worth celebrating if we actually need saving. See, this gift can hit us one of two ways. And I'm curious which way verse 11 hits you. And imagine it like this. We're Iowans that time of year where the roads get kind of iffy. But imagine scenario number one is you're driving down the road and as you're driving, you all of a sudden hit a patch of like black ice, car spins out, you go into the ditch, not bad, but into the ditch enough that like you are definitely not getting out. But as you're in the, di the ditch and you've got the adrenaline pumping and you're, you're kind of freaking out, you do like have enough wherewithal to kind of look around and go, not hurt. I've got my phone car's still running. I've got some heat. And so you pick up your phone, you call AAA because you've got AAA, you're a responsible human being. You've got AAA, you call them. Surprisingly, there's a tow truck just 20 minutes away that's going to come pick you up. When all of a sudden that really nice passerby comes and knocks on your window and says, hey, do you, you okay? Can I help you out? Your response is, actually, I'm, I'm good. If you see somebody else in trouble, go ahead and help them. But I'm, I'm good. Help's on the way. That's scenario number one, okay? Let me compare that with scenario number two. Scenario number two is you're driving down the road, you hit a, black, a patch of black ice and your car spins out of control. But this time, it's not just that you go into the ditch. This time your car flips multiple times, windshield shatters, glasses going everywhere. You are now landing upside down and find yourself sinking slowly into a lake. And you realize you've got a couple of problems. Number one, you are bleeding profusely. And more and more, you're dipping into the frigid waters. And it becomes very obvious to you, you're either going to bleed out or freeze in a matter of minutes. And you don't know which it is. You can't find your phone. And it's pitch black. And then in that moment, you hear someone say, I can help you. Because our, our problem isn't just that we're like stuck in a ditch and need somebody to like push us out. Like often when we think about like our condition, we kind of minimize it. 
You know, we'll talk about what I occasionally sin when in reality, what's true about us is that, no, it's not that you occasionally sin, you are a sinner. That's something that you do from time to time. It's like, it's who you are. You might think that like, well, from time to time, I make bad choices. I do things that I know that God hates. And no, 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 like, like what's true about you is that you are actually in rebellion and an enemy of God. Or you go, well, it's, it's not that bad. I mean, I'm a generally good person, especially in comparison to other people. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a decent person when in reality, what's said about you is that you are an enemy of God. Because it, it's not just that our, our situation that we find ourselves in is we're like stuck in a ditch, helps on the way. Maybe you could push me out quick. That's not our situation. The situation is that we are bleeding out death is everywhere. We are as good as dead. And it's in that darkness. It's in the midst of that silence. All of a sudden the cry comes out, don't be afraid. I'm here. And what should just burst out of our hearts is praise the Lord. Help is on the way. The gift of a savior is only celebrated if we need saving. Guys, we need saving. Today in the city of David, a savior was born for you. Now catch this, who is the Messiah, the Lord? I'd never caught that before, but in this first proclamation, I bet the shepherds caught this, that not only is this child, this promised rescuer that has come to save us, not only has he been sent by God, but he is God. This is the gift of Christmas. God in the flesh, a savior for all people. This is the, the gift of Christmas. You've, you've opened it up and you, you pull it out and you see it here. God in the flesh, a savior for all people. But as you're just about to set the box down, it's like somebody nudges you like, no, 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 there's more in the box. Like underneath like another layer of tissue paper, like, like look, look, look back in there. You start digging out. Guys, and it's not just that the gift of Christmas is salvation, though that would be enough. Under another layer of tissue paper, the gift of Christmas isn't just salvation, it's joy. It's joy. I define joy as eternal and unshakable happiness found in an eternal and unshakable Savior. This is Verse 10, right? The good news of great joy that will be for all people. Literally, it's the gospel of great joy that broke through that first Christmas night and cut through the darkness and was proclaimed to those shepherds. And it's exactly what we all needed. So when the angels had left them, and return to heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and a baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, they reported the message they were told about this child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. We've talked about the audience of Christmas. We've talked about the gift of Christmas. Now I'm talking about 
the response to Christmas. I love how in these verses, joy elicits response. There's no heavy hand here. Notice there's no commands here other than don't be afraid. There was no command for the angels to burst out in worship. There was no command for Mary to treasure these things up in her heart. There was no command for the shepherds to go and see Jesus. And then once they see him, to go and tell everybody they know about him. It was just the overflow of the joy in their hearts. This is why as a church, we have this as a mission statement. It's helping people find their greatest joy in Jesus. Because if you can get that part right, if you can help somebody find their greatest joy in Jesus, everything else works out from there. Or we see this in the scriptures and all over the scriptures. Think about the man who found the treasure buried in a field. Remember what he did? Man finds a treasure buried in a field and then in his joy goes and sells everything he has to buy that field. Nothing else matters. I just want that. It's just the overflow of joy that he's making sacrifices to lay claim to that treasure. I think about the Macedonians. When Paul celebrates the Macedonians, when he writes to the Corinthians, he says this about them, that during a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and extreme poverty, this next part's not gonna make sense having read those previous words, unless you get something, but their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Somehow, <laughs> severe affliction plus abundant joy, which is the only positive number in this whole thing, right? But their severe affliction plus abundant joy plus extreme poverty equaled a wealth of generosity. This is just what joy does that when you experience the overflowing grace of God expressed in Jesus and it invades your life and it does your work, you don't need to be commanded to be generous. You don't need to be commanded to go and tell everybody that you know and even those you don't know about Jesus. You don't need to be commanded to sing your lungs out to Jesus and worship. It's all natural. It's just a natural overflow of the joy that you found in Christ because this joy, the joy of a savior puts everything into perspective. Because though the things of this world that maybe make you momentarily happy, right? I said that I define joy is eternal and unshakable happiness found in an eternal and unshakable savior. This world offers things that will give us moments of happiness, moments of joy. but it breaks, it dies, it eventually turns its back on you. And this joy that Jesus provides, it provides perspective because it actually provides a rock upon which we can stand regardless of our circumstances. If we can get this joy of Jesus right, everything flows from there. But I wanna ask a, a real question, like a heart-to-heart like a -heart question. Because what should we do if we don't feel joyful though? 
Because reality is, I mean, if you define joy as eternal and infinite happiness, there is an aspect to joy then that is emotive. And there are times, guys, where this side of eternity, we're not going to feel joyful. Guys, in this past year, I think you could probably relate to this, but like one of the phrases that Emily Hofert used in our connection group just a couple weeks ago to describe like how she's feeling right now in the midst of 2020, she used the phrase, I thought this was beautiful. She goes, decision fatigue. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like the constant pressure to make decisions of like, now, if I make this decision and I don't hang out with that person because I'm trying to be cautious and prudent in this time, is it consistent with that? And, and, and Emily's leading things, you know, and so she's like, how does this affect then the, the group of people that I'm leading? And I feel that like in leading our church, I, I, I told her, I said, I think it's decision fatigue for me combined with like trying to stay informed fatigue. You know, like every time a new governor's proclamation comes out, which in one week there was three of them, one of them was 56 pages long. I printed the thing out and I'm like, dear Lord, I hope I don't have to read this whole thing to figure out what we should do as a church. Luckily, it was all contained in the first three pages because everything else beyond that was like casinos and racetracks and stuff. I'm like, sweet, I'll focus right here. But it was just, it's just been exhausting this year to try to stay up on everything and then to figure out like, what does that mean we should do? Decision fatigue, information fatigue. Guys, in this year, I've grieved with many of you who have lost loved ones. I've watched friends of mine almost die. We've been in conflict. You know, you've experienced this too. I've been in conflict with friends over things like masks and politics and stuff. Things that I didn't even think I cared about. I don't even know if I really do. It's just the, the time that we're living, I'm trying to like be, be in it, you know? And not only are those things, like those are things outside of my, my home and outside of like my body, but like then like the internal fights over this past year of like bursts of anger as I think I'm just struggling with just like the lack of like daily consistency and rhythm and like, you know, you just longing for things to go back to normal. Because this year, probably more than any other year, I've had to fight for joy. I don't know if that's true for you. Maybe for some of you, you're resonating. So if we're supposed to be a people marked by joy, but we're not always feeling joyful, how do we fight for joy? I just wanted to like, pause on this, this question for a bit and just unpack, like, guys, how do I fight for joy? And I might be missing something in this list, but I, I just wanted to give some practical handles of, like, how I go about fighting for joy when I feel like I just don't feel it, okay? Because the first question I ask when I don't feel joy is I ask the question, is there a sin that I need to confess? It's Psalm 32 when David is talking about hiding sin he says, when I kept silent, my bones groaned. <laughs> For day and night, your, your hand was heavy upon me as in the heat of summer. If there's unconfessed sin in my life, I don't expect to feel joyful. I expect to feel a heavy hand of the Father pressing on me and my strength being sapped as in the heat of summer like David experienced in Psalm 32 after his great sin with Bathsheba. And so I ask myself, I said, is there any sin that I need to confess? And I'll confess it to the Lord. I'll, I'll pull in friends and I'll, I'll share with them. I'll say, guys, I'm sorry. I've, I've done this. I've done this wrong. Or if I've wronged somebody, I'll apologize to them. 
That's the first thing I do. If I don't feel joyful, I always ask a question, is there a sin that I need to confess? Because the second thing that I'll do then after that is that I remind myself of the gift of great joy. I go back to like a passage like this that reminds me like, like this is the message of joy. Because one of the things that I can do in my life is I can often minimize one of two things and this will rob me of joy. Number one, I can either minimize God's holiness or greatness or I can minimize my sinfulness and the gap between God's holiness and greatness and me gets smaller than it should be. My ego starts to get in the way and I start thinking of myself higher than I ought to. And what I need to do is go into that and widen the gap. One of the primary things I'll do is I'll just open the scriptures and I'll let them speak. I'll let God speak to me and push my awareness of his greatness and holiness back up or maybe push my awareness of my sinfulness down a bit and widen that gap. Because when I can see it in its most clarifying ways, that God is holy and I'm here and that gap is bigger than ever, it's when I get overwhelmed by Romans 5. You know what I'm talking about, verse 8? That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 adds, while we were enemies of God. And what I'll just pray in is I just remind myself of the gift, having let scriptures now just widen that gap for me. I'll just begin to pray over just thankfulness. God, thank you. Because I'm way worse than I ever thought I was. And you are way more holy than I ever thought you were. I see that once again, and I'm overwhelmed that you would die for me. And then I'll always even add in this extra element because I always want to remember the future component of that promise of the gift of grace as well, that it's not just that Jesus has died for me and everything I've done now to this point in my life, but even the things that I am ashamed of that I will do in the future, Jesus has already died and covered those as well. And they may even be worse than anything I feel like I've ever done to this point. But God died for me while I was an enemy, while I was a sinner. And the overwhelming just reminder of his grace hits me like it did the first time that I hit my knees and surrendered my life to Christ. And I've now I've done this probably almost a million times over. It's hit my knees in the same way reminded of the gift and let God restore the joy of my salvation. So I confess any unconfessed sin. I'll remind myself of the gift of grace using scriptures and prayer as a way to just enjoy and delight in the presence of God and the overwhelming reality of his grace. And then the third thing that I will do is that I will walk in a way that allows God to use me. I'd be the third thing I'd do. I'll walk in a way that allows God to use me. What I mean is this, guys. I am probably more overwhelmed by joy in the moments when God uses me to encourage a brother or sister in Christ who needs encouraging or to engage a neighbor who doesn't know Christ but maybe move them one step closer to Jesus I am amazed in those times and overwhelmed by joy because I sit there and I walk away from that having prayed with that person or read scriptures with that person or encouraged that person or I took a meal to them and I could see the smile on their face and I know that it's making a difference. I walk away amazed because I sit there and I go, God, you're using me, sinner that I am. And it fills me with joy. 
So those are the ways that I will fight for joy. If there's any unconfessed sin, I'll confess it. I need to remind myself of the gift of God's grace, opening the scriptures and letting them speak and cry out to him in prayer. And then I will let him use me. And these are ways that I fight for joy. Because guys, this side of eternity, there's gonna be cloudy days. And there's gonna be days where you just don't see things like you should. And we need to be brought back to the joy that is in Jesus. And when we do, guys, that joy is supposed to move us. Not with a heavy hand, not, not with an obligation or a duty, but with absolute delight. Can I ask you, guys, what is something that joy has recently moved you to do? What is something that has happened recently in your life that you've done, a step that you've taken, that you go, the only logical explanation for that happening, for us doing that, there's no human reasoning for it other than just purely, it was just the result of joy. When was the last time that joy moved you to do something that could only be explained by joy? Not by you, not by your power, but by the joy of Jesus working through you. Right now, it's very easy to find ways and excuses to do nothing. But Candelo Church, this morning, I bring good news of great joy. A Savior has been born for you. Exactly what you needed. And he was not only born for you, he lived for you. The life you couldn't live. He died for you, the death you deserved, and rose again for you. It's a guarantee of new life. Christmas is not meant to be something that we just acknowledge or celebrate. It's something we must respond to. An offer like this demands a response. What is your response? Let's pray. God, I, uh, I love the mission of this church to help people find their greatest joy in Jesus. And right now when we drive our cars around town, we'll see the word joy everywhere. And many are searching for it, but will not find it because they're not looking for you. And God, I pray this morning for those who realize now that joy is found only in Jesus, that today, God, by believing in you, would find their greatest joy in Jesus right now. And then, God, I pray for those of us who have found our greatest joy in you, that it would then move us to do things that could only be explained by joy, by the joy that you have placed in us. Oh God, let us be a people defined by joy and moved by joy for your glory, we pray. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.